in 2016, President Barack Hussein Obama sat down with the Associated Press for an interview in which he talked about a bowl of Lucky Charms, not the cereal, little keepsakes that would remind him of other people that had encouraged him along his path to his presidency. He told the person that was interviewing them that every day he goes into that bowl and he picks up three to five different keepsakes to remember these specific people that have encouraged him along the way. And I remember this interview very specifically. I remember first he pulled out of his pocket a rosary given to him from Pope Francis. He explained to the young woman that was interviewing him what it represented, peace, tranquility, justice for all. But then it, then it got interesting for me because then he pulled out a little statue of Buddha and he said, this reminds me of so-and-so. And, and then he pulled out a little statue of the monkey god of the Hindu religion. And then he pulled out a Coptic cross. And lastly, he pulled out a lucky poker chip from a biker in the Iowa caucus. And it was really sweet because he, he pointed to all of the different people along the way that these icons represented it. However, at the same time, it was very interesting because I knew that he was a self-identified Christian leader and was kind of just showing you all these different icons of different, very different worldviews and not suggesting whether each one was more valuable than the next. He kind of just let it rest. Left a lot of people wondering, what are you trying to communicate to the world? And regardless of what he was trying to communicate to the world, if you fast-forwarded from this moment 150 years, sociologists would call this moment in this interview a cultural artifact. Why? Because it was this moment with five or six different icons representing different worldviews that would suggest that this moment is a pluralistic moment in our time. What do I mean by that? Well, a pluralistic society is when groups of people with differing worldviews not only coexist side by side, but also consider qualities of other groups as traits worth having. And it sounds really good, and oftentimes it actually is. And yet at the same time, often in New York, the Empire State, one of the ways that pluralism is sustained is by subtly communicating to people of different worldviews. That you can believe whatever you want to believe radically behind closed doors. But that you should never ask anyone to adhere to your worldview in the public square. You should never suggest to anyone in the public that your worldview might add a little bit more value to the world than other different worldviews. And sometimes it's not so subtle. Actually, yesterday we were handing out school supplies in Skillin Park in Sunnyside, and a woman walked by the farmer's market with a bag that said, Jesus may have died for sins, they were just not mine. Right? Suggesting, don't you dare tell me what I should or should not believe. That's the world of pluralism. And yet, we come to the scripture and Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then you start to get to know the Christian worldview a little bit, and you start to understand that 
that God loves humanity so much that he was not okay with just allowing us to guess what God values, what God cares about, what God dislikes. He said, no, I want humanity to know clearly who I am and how much I love them. And so I'm going to give them the full picture of who I am in the form of a human. And Jesus comes into the world as God in the flesh. The full revelation, the scripture calls him, of God. Jesus lives this life, casts vision for us as to what it looks like to be fully human. And then what we find in the gospel accounts is that Jesus actually allows us to do what we want to do to him. And in one of humanity's worst moments, our sin, our shame, our guilt, our violence surfaces, it takes this rabbi to the cross, it crucifies him. He seems to die this death that should have been reserved for people that had that type of evil and violence within them. But he lets us do what we need to do. And then he defeats death as a way of saying, I will not let even that level of evil keep me away from you. This is how much I love you. This is how much I care about you. This is how much I want you to have access to my life, communion with me, intimacy with me. And so all of a sudden, we're stuck in the middle of this tension where we're supposed to value every worldview as much as our own, where we're not supposed to critique or communicate that others might might reap some benefits by adhering to ours. And yet at the same time, we got Jesus going, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And we often don't know what to do with that tension. And so today we begin a two-week teaching series called Kingdom and Empire. All about why and how to talk about the kingdom of God in a pluralistic empire state. Now some of you, you hear this and you think, listen Dan, I, I still have big doubts as to who God is and whether or not I believe in Jesus. And so I just need to be honest with you. I'm not confident in talking about my faith and my spirituality to other people. And that might be the case, but I want to suggest today that it's not, you, you, you don't, You don't do it because of confidence alone. There's something deeper at play that we need to talk about. Some of you are like, Dan, listen, I'm good. I like the church service thing. I like listening to this music, which, by the way, you led beautifully today. I like some of your sermons, others not so much, but but it allows me to to get through the week and and kind of get through life. But I got to be honest with you, Dan, I haven't jumped from like uh, this Christianity thing is what I grew up into. This is my thing. I radically believe this and follow the way of Jesus. And so I just don't know if I'm confident enough talking to other people about it, which I get. But what I want to suggest today, uh, this is much more to do with something else outside of confidence. Then there's people in here that I know are like, I would like to talk about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God with people, my colleagues, people in the neighborhood, but I just feel ill-equipped. I've never gone to school for this. I've not read read much of the scripture. I I start every year by reading Genesis, and I get through Genesis 3, and then I'm done. And I still want to start over the next year. I lack the confidence. But I want to suggest to you today that it's more than confidence that keeps us from talking about the good grace and mercy and forgiveness and power and presence of this God. See, I would suggest that our failure to proclaim the love of God to the city of New York has less to do with confidence and more to do with confusion. There's some misunderstanding at play. I want to talk to you today briefly about three different misunderstandings 
that keep us from joining an epic adventure of sharing with the world in this beautiful city the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the reconciliation of God. The first is this. We misunderstand the source. Misunderstanding one is we misunderstand the source. For many of us, when we start talking about proclaiming the kingdom of God, what theologians and scholars would call evangelism, right? Heralding the good news. Our visceral response is to go, I can't do that. Right? I don't have the education. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the experience. I don't have the people skills. I don't have enough faith. But do not be confused about the source in which the kingdom of God actually comes from. Matthew, the author of this gospel, he begins this passage of scripture in a very specific intentional way. He says, Jesus called the twelve disciples or students to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then I believe intentionally he lists out this group. He says, these are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter. His brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee. His brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As Jesus launches his students into the work of proclaiming the kingdom, and ushering in the kingdom, and talking about the love of God, he sends the most culturally diverse, emotionally stunted, immoral, unethical, unschooled group of people you could potentially bring together. James and John were the boneheads known as the sons of thunder who started asking Jesus about whether or not they could sit next to him in a prestigious seat in heaven. Thomas needed to actually stick his hand in the resurrected side of Jesus to actually believe, even though he had seen miracle after miracle while Jesus walked the earth with him. Simon betrayed him in Christ's most desperate hour. The other Simon was a violent rebel, part of the revolution. He was a a war hero to the wrong side. Matthew was a crooked tax collector. Jesus, Judas, got Jesus killed. Yet these are the people that, that Jesus sends out. God in flesh comes into the world, holds his inauguration speech, his address, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and after teaching some of his first followers, he selects a few and launches them out as this group. Why is this important? Because many of us in this room, we fail to talk about our love for God, or more importantly, God's love for us, because we're afraid we're not good enough, or experienced enough, or or have enough knowledge to get it right. But this is a misunderstanding of the source of power, which is why Jesus sends these buffoons out as his first battalion. And so we can see that it has little to do with our skill set or our morality and all to do with his authority. Do not confuse the source of the kingdom of God to be our morality instead of his authority. Many of us in this room will never get to play a part in somebody's story because we confuse the source of this transformation with, 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 with our morality, with our goodness, with our intellect, with our intelligence. I know the default is go, I've never taken a class, I can't do this, or I've never read a, a Christian book, I can't do this. Or worse yet, I can't tell people about Jesus. Do you know my past week, what it looked like? I'd be hypocritical. I've slipped back into all these bad habits, but that again is confusing the this, this source. The source of the kingdom of God is not our morality, it's his authority. 
told this story before, but we, our two oldest are adopted out of the foster care system. It was when Marquisha was seven or eight years old and Isaiah, her biological brother, was four that we sat my three-year-old biological boy, Liam, down to let him know that we were going to adopt the two oldest. And so we took Liam into our bedroom. We sat him down and I looked at Liam. I said, Liam, we're going to invite Marquisha and Isaiah into our forever family, but you're going to do it. And he looked at me as a three-year-old. He goes, yeah? I was like, yeah. So he gets off the bed, he walks downstairs, he walks in the living room without pausing. He goes, hey guys, you're part of our forever family now. And he walks out. But he delivered it with such confidence and authority that only that somebody that's secure in their family standing can do. That's authority. Do not confuse that with your morality. We have the authority of the Holy Spirit if we have said yes to Christ. That is the source of power that the kingdom comes from. Our witness doesn't come out of our holiness. Our witness comes out of our brokenness. That's why I love Amanda's leadership so much. Because she leads with her brokenness. She leads with her faults and failures. Which can we just say, how much more attractive is it to follow somebody who leads with their brokenness versus somebody who leads with their holiness? I don't want to follow somebody that leads with their holiness. All I'm thinking is I can't be that holy the entire time. And so it's a clear identity in in the fact that we are sons and daughters of a king. It is our brokenness and humility that says yes to his authority. That is the source. If Judas was sent out with the authority of Christ, so are you. I want you to hear that. If if Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus and killed Jesus, is sent out with the authority of Christ, guess who else is? Do not be surprised by your hesitancy to talk about the love of God if you confuse the source of power, his authority, with your morality. I wouldn't want to preach about my morality to my colleagues and neighbors either. It's not that inspiring. Right? Our failure to proclaim the love of God to the city of New York has way less to do with confidence and way more to do with confusion. And that first misunderstanding has to do with the source. The second one, though, has to, has to do with the misunderstanding of the offer at play. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, has come near. He's looking at this ragtag group of disciples now, and he says, Now I want you to go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. I want you to try and picture how funny this scene is. Jesus doesn't only gather a bunch of screw-ups, but he gathers them and then asks them to go out and do the impossible. Literally, the impossible. Not figuratively, literally the impossible. It doesn't matter how intelligent, how savvy, how privileged you are, you cannot accomplish the task list that Jesus gives these people on your own. But This is what he gives them. Which is hilarious. Because when we talk about our faith or our evangelism and proclaiming what we believe, this is not what I'm thinking through. If you're like me, my my frame of mind is this. If I'm I'm thinking about sharing my faith, I'm trying to get person A who believes in, in worldview A to cognitively come to a point where they now believe in worldview B, which is mine. And I want them to do that because I believe that somehow my worldview that I want them to cognitively adhere to will lead to some type of flourishing and eternity. 
But here's what happens in New York. And those of you that are new to New York, this is going to happen to you very quickly. You wake up in the morning. I wake up in the morning. And I look to my Hindu neighbor. And then I walk down the hall and see my Muslim friend who's part of leading the Islamic society. And subconsciously, what I do in my mind is I go, their lives could not be more drastically different than mine. Why they've married who they've married, drastically different decision-making process than how I made the decisions. Where they come from, their cultural context, what their family values, what they don't value, completely different than mine. And here's what I do subconsciously. I look at my Christianity that is still largely rooted in white evangelicalism. Yours might be different. Yours may be rooted in Korean evangelicalism. Or your, your connection to Christ might be rooted in African American church experience. But, but subconsciously what I'm doing is I'm seeing how different my life is, and I go, that cultural gap is way too big to take person A from worldview A to cognitively believing in worldview B that I have and hold. And so I stay quiet. Or I wake up and I see my neighbor who has serious mental illness. Or I wake up to see my neighbor who is struggling with years of addiction. And I see that they are in complete despair. And I think the last thing they need to hear right now is that they should cognitively believe in this. And so I stay silent. Or, or we see those with cognitive disability. And I think, well, this is odd because if this is all about cognitively adhering to a new belief system or doctrinal beliefs, they're probably too far off to get this. And so I stay quiet. Or I look to my Muslim neighbor who's way nicer than I, who fights for justice more than I do, who gives generously more than I do, and frankly, who looks a lot more like Jesus than I do, and I go, well, wait a minute. Why should I have them adhere cognitively to a different set of beliefs? Whatever they got going on is working a lot better than what I got going on. Or we look at the global travesty, the wars, the genocides. And I, and, I, and I feel how heavy it is. I go, really? Me trying to get person A with this worldview and to, to, to point B, cognitively believing in this set of beliefs, that just feels trite compared to what's happening here. But all of this is confusing the offer. Cognitive beliefs and adhering to a cognitive belief, it's important. But that alone, severely confusing the offer. We're not offering a set of cognitive beliefs. We're not offering a political worldview or a set of behavioral norms. We are offering what this scripture says, the kingdom of God, a new spiritual realm, a kingdom of justice and power and righteousness and healing and redemption and light that spiritually pushes back principalities and powers of darkness that do not belong to God himself. See, when I've reduced the kingdom of God to a cognitive set of beliefs alone, I'm, what I'm calling people into is just sad. Because I'm going, come on, believe this, come to this church, and then you can be an usher. Give your life for that. But people that understand the kingdom of God, 
You're giving them a whole different vision, a vision to heal the wounds of a neighborhood, to renew entire industries, to be fathers to the fatherless, to fight for sobriety for addicts, to restore marriages that have been in shambles since they started. And see, when we boil down the kingdom of God to a set of cognitive beliefs alone, we see the gospel in terms of good news about the afterlife, right? Which I fully believe in one. But it's so you can make sure you're getting into heaven. But the kingdom, the, the kingdom, the kingdom is about, about communion and life with God now where you are experiencing the power and the healing presence of God now. That's, that's a different thing. When we boil down Christianity to a set of cognitive beliefs, it becomes about the church. Everything is about this organizational, institutional thing. But the kingdom was never meant to be a means to a bigger church. The church is supposed to be a means to demonstrating the kingdom to all people in all places at all times. And so one of the reasons that we don't proclaim the good news of Jesus is because we've just simply misunderstood the offer. Do we really want to simply offer somebody a set of cognitive beliefs? No. I want to offer them a a whole new reality, a spiritual realm that they can surrender to and reap the benefits of. Our failure to proclaim the love of God to the city of New York has way less to do with any confidence level. It has way more to do with confusion. We misunderstand the source of power. We misunderstand the offer. But lastly, we misunderstand the motive. As you go, Jesus says, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, he finishes, freely give. Freely you have received, now freely give. This is all about motive. So again, I want you to imagine this crew of screw-ups. Filled with shame and guilt, violent, crooked, you name it, it's happening in this crew. And Jesus says, go and do what is humanly impossible. You have my authority. Go. Did you imagine them looking out at each other going, why? Are we going because we, we can, we're equipped to do this? Absolutely not. Are we going because we, we should? Are we going to get in trouble if we don't go? They haven't seen that yet. Are we going because that's what good religious people do? I can assure you that that wasn't part of the religious systems at this point in time. Are we going because we don't want people to see eternal torment? I wasn't even part of the worldview system back then. And honestly, as much as I believe in an afterlife, I'm not sure... The motivation of fear of escaping something I've never experienced in the first place is going to be a motivator that sustains. So why? Well, Jesus says, here's why you go. You go because freely you've received. Uh, Amanda and I and our family, we belong to the, the Manhattan Park pool down the way. We, we, uh, we got here six plus years ago. And we overlooked the pool in our balcony, not at that point in time, but we, we, we kind of saw everybody who was at the pool. And we thought, these are all our neighbors, and so if we're going to suffer for Jesus and love our neighbors, well, we better belong to this pool too. But for a family of eight, it's crazy expensive. It's like half my salary. 
But we belong to the pool for the last six years now. We pay this membership for the eight of us and get to go a few times a week. And it really has been a source of joy and a way to connect with neighbors. However, this past July, July 4th weekend, was an interesting one for me. I showed up at the pool, and Amanda told me the, the night before, she's like, we better get there early. Like, we got to get there before it opens. I'm like, are you serious? This is Roosevelt Island. Why do you think people are coming from off island to spend the day here? We show up 10 minutes before, there has got to be 80 to 90 people in line. And so I'm like, oh, okay, it's 90 degrees out. We're going to be waiting in line for a bit. That's okay. But then I started to see the, the lack of tact and wisdom with Manhattan Park's pool staff. As they, as they lined up everybody in a single file line, both members who have their past that could easily have walked by like this, and everybody else from off-island that has to pay 30-some dollars for the day. And I'm like, this is interesting. This is going to take forever. And you're not setting up another line for those that have already paid for a membership. I'm a little frustrated. And then I start to realize resources are limited. Like there's only amount of certain chairs in there for the day. And I'm counting off people now going, ooh, my family of eight is not going to have seats all day long. And I'm now mad. I have fully forgotten that I'm a pastor on this island at this point in time. And so I, I, I see people slowly going in, and I realize why I'm angry. I'm angry because I've paid. I've earned this. These people haven't, and resources are limited. I should have rights to the resources within that pool, but today I don't. And you realize that's kind of how life is. When you earn something, it changes the dynamics of the people around you. When you've earned something, it changes how you treat those that haven't earned something and those that have. And this is why the gospel of Jesus is so frustrating to most humans. Because God is clear, you have not earned this. The kingdom of God is freely given to you. It doesn't have anything to do with what you've done or what you haven't done. It is for you out of my deep love for who you are. Period. And what that does is it produces both a confidence and humility in you. A confidence that affects those that are around you and a humility that affects those that are around you. It produces a confidence like you've never seen before because you realize there is nothing that I can do that will lose the love of God. Because this is not wrapped up in my resources, my energy, because I did not earn this, because this is all to do with what Jesus has done on my behalf, I cannot, I cannot lose this. And it provokes a confidence in you that allows you to walk up to people that are more influential than you, Colleagues that have a bigger sphere of influence than you. People that have more privilege than you. People that culture, the culture says are more important and more value than, valuable than you. And you have the ability, the confidence of freedom to look at them and go, let me tell you about something that's better than all this other stuff that you have. Let me tell you about my God that loves me and loves you. But then it also provokes a humility in you because you realize that though you can't lose his love, you can't earn it either. There is nothing that you can do, no skill set, knowledge, intellect, that you can bring to the table that earns the love of the Father. It all has to do with what Jesus has done. And so it provokes a humility that allows you to go to people that culture says you are far higher than. 
It allows you to go to kids and cognitively disabled and physically impaired and people of color that have been stuck out on the margins because of the systems of this world and allows you to empathize as much as you possibly can, listen and go, let me tell you about something that is good for you and not just me. We misunderstand, misunderstand this. We misunderstand the source. We misunderstand the motive. And we misunderstand the offer in the first place. And it's why we end the service today the way that we always end service. Where we get to remember that this is just a thing of reception. There is nothing we can do to earn the broken body of Jesus. There is nothing that we can do to lose it. There is nothing we can do to earn the the poured out blood of Christ for the sins of the world. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's there's nothing. He's done this to, to show you how much God loves you. To show you that not even death itself can keep you away from him and him away from you. You are kids of a king. You are sons and daughters who have the ability to say, no, this is not about my morality. This is about your authority. Yes, I want it. You are kids of the king, sons and daughters that have the ability to go, I'm not just offering some religious answers and cognitive agreement with some doctrine. I'm offering the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And all of it comes because we've said yes. We've opened up our hands and said, we don't want to be Lord of our own lives anymore. It is you. You have us. You want us. Let's go.